You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcast, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. Theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. Chapter six of The Great Divorce is a different chapter than the last two. And so it's going to give us some time to connect the last two people we've spoken with, with the reality of the world around it. Because C.S. Lewis is intentionally writing a comprehensive world where, like the last chapter said, Greytown is hell. Like, I don't know what you call it, but we call Greytown hell. And so clearly where you are now is not hell, which is heaven. And so we're going to describe really what the difference is between those two places, how Lewis describes it. But there's a reason I think that C.S. Lewis does two interviews, one with the guy who uh, was the boss, a bad boss, and one with the bishop. And then he goes into more detail about the world in which they're in. And I think it's because it's all interconnected with each other. The last chapter, chapter five, we ended with a conversation between the bishop and the solid person about what questions are for. We're going to ask that question in a later chapter with an artist about what light is for and what painting is for and what art is for. But this question of truth and reality is an important one that Lewis is trying to get at, where we really are all living in some ways at Earth right now in some form of gray town. Now, it's not as bad. It's not as grotesque. It's still beautiful, right? Because Earth can be, still be the footstool of heaven and all that. But we all in some ways live our lives not quite where God wants us to. And a lot of times that comes with the fact that we're not living in accordance with the reality that actually God has in front of us. Forrest and I, we've had a small group that has had more conversations about the definition of truth, facts, and reality than you can ever imagine because our world has twisted so many things with a conversation of my truth or his truth or their truth. And the last conversation in chapter five was about a bishop. Who, or the, even the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's right. There's we have an a, attorney in our group. <laughs> we have an attorney in our group. And so it was very interesting to talk about, like, why do you have to, like, when you're on a stand, why do you have to talk not just and say, I'm not going to lie? You have to say, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because you could technically say true comments and still lie, or still leave people with the implication of lying. But it's like the bishop in the last chapter, or the boss in two chapters earlier, both of them were living in their own reality and not in God's, right? The guy who's the boss, who's like, I was a good man. And the solid person's looking at it going, no, you weren't. None of us were. And you got the bishop who's going, I was intellectually honest. I asked hard questions. And the solid person's going, no, 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 no. You were asking hard questions, not seeking answers. That's not actually asking questions. That's just a PR firm trying to get you some book sales. You've got to be actually intellectually honest with your own self about what you're seeking. And 
In chapter six, we talk about the world in which we're living, or rather the world in which C.S. Lewis is presenting. And I really believe the world in which we're living because when Jesus came to earth and he said, the kingdom of heaven is now, I think we're all these people who think, well, we're good when we're really not, or we aren't really honest with ourselves often about what our true motivations are. And Lewis has set up a world here where you can't deny the reality because it is so much stronger, so much purer. The colors are more rich. Even the blades of grass are so real that we are nothing next to them. This book's got a lot of good meat to it. Like there's a lot of good things. One of the reasons I like it so much, I've always had a real vague picture of what heaven is in my head. Like I, like when I try to imagine it, you know, it's clouds, it's, you know, golden gates, it's, you know, pearly gates, it's the golden road. Like, but it's like, there's really nothing firm I could ever put my head around. And I feel like what he's done, particularly in this chapter and like what you kind of feel um, up to this point and then in this chapter, it really gets into it is it gives me something to think about and it gives me a way to process heaven that I've never had before. Heaven is connected to, so Revelation 21, and then I saw a new heaven and new earth. The first one had passed away. The pitch, the goal, it's like why lions are even in heaven is because God's going to redeem all creation. One of my favorite questions is, do dogs go to heaven? And the answer is yes, because God is redeeming all creation, even the lions. Simba will be in heaven with us, Forrest. Actually, it was Mufasa. Oh, Mufasa. Simba's (laughs) still alive. In heaven, it's not just like floaty clouds. It's the world redeemed. And so here's how he describes it. The guy actually is walking on a river. The cool, smooth skin of the bright water was delicious to my feet, and I walked on it for about an hour, making perhaps a couple of hundred yards. And then the going became difficult. Islands of foam came swirling down towards me, bruising my shins like stones if I did not get out of their way. The surface became uneven, rounded itself into lovely hollows and elbows of water, which distorted the appearance of the pebbles on the bottom and threw me off my balance, so I had to scramble to shore. He's describing a world that is so real that you've got to be so concerned with tiny flecks of water that act like hard stones getting pelted at you. You can deny a lot of things, right? Like, but how do you get confronted with God or reality or the way the world is as God sees it? That's how I see this is like, God is real. Heaven is real. And we're living our lives, not quite living into it. You realize that he's walking towards a waterfall. And here's the description. It says, on earth, such a waterfall could not have been perceived at all as a whole. It was too big. It sound would have been a terror in the woods for 20 miles. But here he is staring at this thing, perceiving it. And it's real in a way that nothing else has ever been real. I see Lewis in this, writing this passage, trying to get people to know, because both the last two characters have rejected heaven and wanting them to know what they're actually rejecting. They're rejecting reality. They're rejecting Niagara Falls and how beautiful it is, or whatever that is. And the option ahead of us is actually possible that we can live a better life. So it continues like in this story. So he scrambles out of the water. You realize he's walking towards a waterfall that is so big and so gorgeous that it's like Niagara Falls. Like you ever stood in front of Niagara Falls and just you can't think about your own brokenness or your own weakness or whatever. You literally just stand back there and go, That's a ton of water. This thing is so bigger than I ever imagined it to be. There aren't many things that live up to its, you know, reputation. 
The Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls are two of those things that like, I can't imagine you sitting there whining about anything at either of those places because the majesty and the gorgeousness of the reality in front of you is so huge. You can't actually navigate it any differently. You've got to sit there and go, oh my gosh, that's, that's amazing. I thought it was cool. I don't know that I fully understand what he's saying, but when he talks about his senses were now receiving impressions, which would normally exceed their capacity. He's saying that the world is so much more solid and real that our senses can only take in some portion of the grandeur of what the world actually is. I feel that way when I look at the night sky, right? When you actually are in the middle of nowhere and you see the Milky Way and you think, I wish my senses were better to actually take in all the majesty that's ahead of me. He's setting up a world where you can't reject its reality. That both the two people in the last two chapters who rejected the option to go forward they're missing out on glory. They're missing out on beauty. They're missing out on something that is more real than they could ever imagine. You see them and they're like, well, the first guy chose his rights over heaven, over beauty and grandeur and splendor and joy. The second one chose to go back to hell to present a paper on whether or not Jesus would have changed his opinions had he grown older and been a hippie in his 60s or something. I don't know. And here he's walking in this garden going, they rejected this? This is glorious. There's a guy here that he notices in the middle of all of this splendor who's trying to do something that is impossible in that world. So to suddenly my attention was diverted by curious appearance in the foreground. A hawthorn bush not 20 yards away seemed to be behaving oddly. But it wasn't the bush. It was one of the ghosts who's crouching around and trying to not be seen in this world. I just had this like comedy thing where like this comedy scene where like, You've got all this reality around it and there's someone trying to hide and everyone notices, but it's just right in front of you. Like the, bu the bush is moving around. The bush is moving around. He's holding the bush. Like he's trying to like, well, except the funny thing is he can't even pick up the bush. So he's like trying to pick up the bush and keeps moving to the next bush. And so it says the ghost keeps trying to grab something. So the ghost is trying to find his way, pick his way through this area. And it's just this comedic scene until he goes to a, the bottom of an apple tree and a wind gusts and the apples fall on the guy. And you've already been described how a tiny fleck of water is like a pebble just shooting at you. And you can only imagine. Also, I was laughing when he talked about the flowers that he was trying to crawl between and the wind started blowing them. And I pictured like, he's like pinned between yeah, two daffodils yeah. and he's like, oh, help me. And then apples fall on him. And then he realized that what he's doing is trying to fill his pockets with apples. So this ghost who has almost no substance for whom the grass he can't even bend under his feet is sitting there trying to take an apple back with him. And it says, of course, it was useless. One could see how his ambitions were gradually forced down. He gave up the idea of a pocketful. Two would have to do. He gave up the idea of two. He would take the one, largest one, gave up that hope. He was now looking for the smallest <laughs> one. He was trying to find if there was one small enough to carry. And the amazing thing was that he succeeded. The narrator remembered what a leaf had felt like. He couldn't imagine how hard that character was working to pick up the smallest apple. There's even a phrase here where he's trying to walk back to the bus and he says, yet even so, inch by inch, still availing himself every scrap of cover, he set out on his Via Dolorosa to the bus carrying his torture. The Via Dolorosa is the pathway Jesus took from Jerusalem down to the cross. So he's on his own path of sacrifice. And a great voice goes, fool, put it down. You cannot take it back. There is not room for it in hell. 
Stay here and learn to eat such apples. The very leaves and blades of grass in the wood will delight to teach you. Here's the really fascinating thing is that God is offering us something unbelievable. And what we want to do often is take it back in our lives. We want to have, okay, well, let's just have the joy that God wants us. But I want to take it back down into hell with me. We want the, the hope that God offers, but we want it. We still want to nurse all our old grievances. We still want to live in hell. We still want to have all of our baggage. We just want to have this pretty amazing thing next to it. And that's not the choice it's offered. And that's why the bishop was offered hope and walking towards the mountains. The boss who was bad was said, just stop it. Just forget your pain. But he still wants heaven, but with a, his pain. I met a guy once for lunch that had, I didn't know him before. And I read his profile said all the things he was interested in and, you know, like he was, he was involved in this organization and he, he was interested in these hobbies and stuff. And I was like, this guy's going to be awesome. And so I show up and I meet him and I was like, so tell me about that. And he's like, oh, I hadn't been there in years. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, what about, what about this? Like you do this? And he's like, no, I don't do that anymore. Like I hadn't done that in years. And, I'm, and I was like, this guy wrote the profile of like the perfect version of himself, but he was just happy not to, to me, it didn't seem like it would be that hard for him to live into what his profile said, but he didn't want to. Like it wasn't, it was, it was more interested in just having it as a profile than he was actually doing it himself. I do that too. Like, you know, I make my profile. Like well, we all do. We all try to make our PR department different than our actual selves. We want our Instagram or whatever it is, or Facebook or TikTok, whatever it is, you make this like outward projection of you that I'm cool. I'm awesome. I'm these things. And the reality is never as good as that. Like the celebrity world. Like if you actually got to know most of the celebrities, you might not actually like the celebrities you think are rather amazing. Why? Because they're normal people who have PR departments who make them look like they're amazing. Like yet we are all in that journey. And so I think we can all resonate with the guy who's like, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to actually stay here and be better. I just want to have a little bit better and still be myself. I want to say I do. I think Kenny Chesney has a song, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Go Now. It's that, right? It's The idea of it is great. But when it comes down to it, there's a golden apple right here. I could take back and you know do quite a bit with it back there. Each of these people we've talked to, and I think it's why C.S. Lewis put this chapter after the last two, is the option is actually different. The option that everyone goes there is thinking, I can still be myself. I can still have my own weaknesses and flaws, nurse my own grievances, my own I pride. like that part. I, yeah. I like yeah. that part of myself. I don't want to give that part of myself up. I just want some goodness to come join me. And that's not actually what's offered. That apple can't fit in hell. So there's one spoiler I'm going to tell you that comes later. But hell, as you find out a few chapters later, is actually a tiny space. Crack. Like, it's a crack in the dirt. So when you go to the first few chapters and they describe Greytown, and then it says the bus leaves the ground, comes out, and there's a huge cliff, what you realize is they've not just changed locations. Hell is so insignificant and tiny, it comes from a crack in the dirt. And so the idea that they could take the apple down into hell with them is ludicrous. Like, you don't really know this when you're in this chapter. It's why I want to tell you it now is because if you're reading the book, you're like, why can't that fit into hell? They could just take that into Greytown. It's because that apple is a hundred million times the size of hell. Because hell and all the grievances and all the issues and all the pride and all the self-importance that exists in Greytown ain't worth nothing. 
It's like Napoleon's grievances of whose fault it was, or Julius Caesar, I imagine, being in hell and going, well, it was Brutus who did it, and yada, yada. All of that ain't nothing compared to what is offered. The only choice is to change yourself. The only choice is to choose something more solid so that you can stay and actually eat the apple. When you just described that, it helped me, the verse about, you know, tear out your eye for... It's better to pluck out your eye than let your whole body be thrown into hell. Yes. When you realize when you're in hell and that eye is making you stay there, when you get to heaven, it'll be insignificant. It's it like, will be nothing. Because all the grievances, like, it's why... I don't really agree with the thing you should never go to bed angry because sometimes like with your spouse, because sometimes you wake up in the morning and realize your anger actually was completely insignificant. That's what it's like in heaven, where even your greatest frustration, your greatest pride, your greatest difficulty ain't worth it. So this world that C.S. Lewis has set up, he is picturing it as so real that next to it, your own pride, grievances, anger, frustration, lust, whatever it is. It isn't worth it. But it also shows, and this goes back to what we talked about before, that it would be really hard to be the solid people trying to explain to somebody the difference. Like It'd be hard to even get the perspective of somebody that would think that crack is okay. Because they look at it and go, you want to go back there? That's tiny. That's insignificant. That's nothing. And that guy goes, no, there is so much land. There are millions of yeah. miles. Napoleon's down there. And the solid person's going, but you haven't seen what I've seen. It's like our comment about when you're the mathematician and you understand the beauty of math and how far it goes and you're trying to explain to somebody how to add and subtract, they don't understand why that's important. They don't understand the end of the road, the top of the mountain. This chapter ends with whether the ghost heard or not, I don't know. At any rate, after pausing for a few minutes, it braced itself anew for its agonies and continued with even greater caution till I lost sight of it. He was told. Stay here, grow solid enough to eat the apple. It's actually for you. And instead, he chooses his agony over the option of heaven. And you can see with both the last two chapters why they choose it. They choose it because it's who they are, because they want their rights. Who doesn't want their rights? I want my rights. The bishop chooses it because, well, he was intellectually honest. He was intellectually honest and he defied the resurrection. Forget the fact that he wasn't actually intellectually honest, but that's how he got through his day, was understanding that grievance or that anger or that whatever. I like this chapter because it sets us up and it makes me wonder. This is where I'll, I'll go to me. It makes me wonder, what in my life am I choosing that's actually insignificant? A drama, a frustration, whatever. And that if God spoke to me or the angel of the mountain or whatever it was that did it, if they spoke to me, what would they say fool put it down? Actually, I just started thinking about who would come back and get me. Like that, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not real excited about that thought. There's a lot of people I'd be like, oh, yep. And that's exactly who would come. So my favorite story on this comes from a guy who is a Vietnam vet at this church at St. Andrew. And I was preaching on a topic like this once about anger and all the rest of it. He says, do you want to know what changed my life? I said, always. Like, I love those questions. What changed your life? Tell me. He said, you know, I really hated Jane Fonda. So I don't know if how much you know about, about Vietnam, but Jane Fonda particularly like went over to North Vietnam, took a picture on one of the guns that was shooting down the planes that this guy was in. It was a very controversial time in America. And a lot of servicemen and women hated Jane Fonda because she, in their view, betrayed the country. 
And he says, and I really, I had deep hatred for her. Until one day when I was reading my Bible, I realized that I didn't want to go to hell for Jane Fonda, that I had to forgive Jane. And he goes, it's not about Jane. My anger wasn't hurting her. My anger was hurting me. And he goes, I realized that I was tempting hell in my own life for Jane Fonda. Not because she had anything to do with it, but because he had chosen that grievance and it had become such a part of him that he knew he had to let it go in order to actually choose heaven. And I think that's exactly what's happening in this moment, right? Where you've got reality, like joys in front of you. Why wake up 30 years later, 50 years later, hating Jane Fonda when actually joy is offered to you right now? I will tell you, I told that story and a guy walked out after me and goes, I hear you, but I still hate Jane Fonda. I went, okay, that's fine. I understand that, but I'm telling you, that's the option ahead of us. I'm still going back on the bus. <laughs> I'm still going back on the bus. It seems Lewis is setting up this world that's hard to understand and it's so metaphorical and yet we do it every day. And so I guess the way to end this particular episode is just to repeat back what the angel said, which is whatever it is in your life that you think you can carry, fool, put it down. Stay, eat the fruit. Because God actually has that in front of us. But it's teaching me to wait. Got no place, but I know just why I'm here. Lift me out of